1: at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.
0: Slow Burn Media, an evergreen podcast presents Who Killed? A podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless. This is her and me. She's caring, loving, always willing to help. She's just a downright amazing woman. Samantha Hedrick's grandmother, Phyllis Cottle, survived a horrific attack in 1984 to become a champion for victims' rights, talking with us about that in 2004. I
1: think the victims need to be allowed the time to heal, to go on with their lives, and not have to live with the prospect of fighting the parole board
0: over and over again. Hello and welcome to episode 200 and something of Who Killed. I'm your host, Bill Huffman, and this is a Slowburn Media Evergreen Podcast and Killer Podcast production. On this week's show, I will be sitting down with one Carol Costello, who is hosting a new podcast on Evergreen Podcasts and Killer Podcasts, and that is Blind Rage. And it covers the case of one Phyllis Cottle. It's a tragic case and one that can only be told from Carol's perspective. So join me this week as we sit down with former CNN anchor, Carol Costello, for a very personal story. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Who Killed? I'm your host, Bill Huffman, and this is a Slow Burn Media, Evergreen Podcasts, and Killer Podcast production. On this week's episode, we are lucky to be joined by former CNN anchor, Carol Costello, And we are here to discuss her new podcast, Blind Rage, which covers the case out of Akron, Ohio, of one Phyllis Cottle. And welcome to the show, Carol.
1: Thank you so much, Bill. I'm so excited to be on and excited to to share news about my podcast, which I've been working on for a
0: very long time. It becomes a labor of love after a while, doesn't it
1: really labor of love
0: <laughs> all right fine you maybe I'm putting words in your mouth but uh yeah it's it's one of those things uh it's kind of like writing a book it's um it's a torturous process and it can be lonely and mm, it's very lonely and it can also be depressing, especially you know when you're talking about a case uh, such as Phyllis's. How did you go about getting involved with Phyllis's case? Like, how long have you been following this?
1: Oh my God, for 35 years, maybe 37. I've lost track. It was the biggest story I ever covered as a rookie reporter at WAKR Radio, TV 23 in Akron, Ohio. And she was such a courageous survivor. I've never met anyone like her in all of these years of working as a journalist. Her story just stuck with me through all of these years, and I've always wanted to tell her story. And once I left CNN, I suddenly had time and no more excuses, and I got down to business.
0: So you were originally working in the Akron area. Are you um, from the area?
1: Yes, I'm from Canton, Ohio. And I interned at Uh, TV23, WAKR, because I went to Kent State University. So it was right down the street. I learned a lot there. And as a local reporter at a small station like that, you cover everything, every kind of story. So I covered everything from the birthday parties of 100 year olds to Phyllis Cottle's case. And I think one of the reasons that Phyllis's case stuck with me was because you learn on the job as a reporter. I mean, nobody teaches you to deal with trauma victims. Nobody teaches you how to sensitively report on stories such as Phyllis's. So I was um, kind of finding my way through the dark, hoping I did everything right. I didn't. And that will also be part of the podcast.
0: Yeah. So it's very interesting that uh, you've been covering this case for so long. And it's not to say you've been covering it, but being aware of it and then... I think the first case that you cover that is so traumatic, such as this, has got to stick with you. The fact that you're not with CNN and are able to give the time necessary, because stories like Phyllis's aren't something that can be told in short little news packages, and I think we've talked about that before, where the podcast medium allows you to get into that deeper level of a case and get to know the victim opposed to just a couple sound bites here or there. And I think that that is exactly what uh, people want when it comes to a good, thorough, true crime podcast because that's really what you've done here. Oh, definitely.
1: I wanted to do a deep dive on how this one crime affected so many people. You know, not just me, obviously, but Phyllis's family, the wider community, uh, the police. You know, some of them had kind of psychological breakdowns um, working on her case. We don't think about police officers in in those terms, but they are human beings in the end, right?
0: Absolutely. So I
1: wanted to to tell a story, not only Phyllis's story, but how Phyllis herself affected every person around her for many, many years. And um, I think that her crime happened in 1984, Mm -hmm. which was a really weird time for women as far as feminism goes, and, and workplace equality, and you know whether people believed you if you were sexually
0: assaulted, I Can think you that, that a little bit because <laughs> because as a man and being five at that time, <laughs> uh, know. you know I was not very aware of what was going on, but I don't, uh, I just haven't really the early eighties. I wouldn't have thought it would have been that difficult. Again, I'm not a woman, so if you, I hated. I'm apologize for interrupting you, but I just feel like no, that, no, I'm that, I'm
1: very I'm very proud of you for asking that question. I think that the '80s are romanticized now. Like all the '80s fashion is back, and some of the '80s music. Madonna's going on tour again. Blah blah blah. And when I think of the '80s as a as a woman, um, and I was in my 20s then it was just a confusing time. I mean, in 1984, it was legal to rape your wife in Ohio. Um, Date rape, the concept of date rape was just coming into the public consciousness. And it wasn't very pretty what people said about that. Because, you know, all of these studies that showed that young women in college um, said they were sexually assaulted in, in big numbers. And then people coming out and saying that, oh, those women were just had a bad experience and they're just complaining and they're lying. I mean, there was a lot of that in 1984. There's still some of that now, but it was really at fever pitch back then. So, you know, as a woman who entered a predominantly male field, which journalism was in 1984, um, it was just really confusing because you went in expecting to be treated equally, and like a smart human being, and often you were not, and you were discriminated against. And then all that other stuff was boiling up too, as far as how people perceived as sexual assaults back then. And then this big case came about Phyllis Cottle, who was sexually assaulted and worse, and she just became a champion of every woman who felt they didn't have a voice. That's what she became for women in Akron, Ohio and beyond.
0: Now, with Phyllis's case, could you give us a little background on what exactly occurred and what led her to become the advocate that she has become?
1: Phyllis was 44 years old when she was carjacked at work. Um, She was taken to a vacant house and she was raped repeatedly. And then her assailant took her to her bank so he could steal money from her. And then he took her back to that house and raped her again. And um, I'm not gonna say what ultimately happened to her, but he he, um, injured her terribly, tied her up, put her inside a car, uh, doused her with a flammable liquid and set the car on fire and locked the doors and off he ran. I don't know how Phyllis found the strength to get out of that car, but she did. You might think that um, Phyllis prayed and, and took God to help her, but that wasn't what she did. In her words, she got pissed. She got so angry that this man was gonna kill her after all that he'd already taken from her, that this rage boiled inside of her, and she got out of the car. And she made it her mission at that point to hunt him down.
0: Uh, yeah, that's pretty traumatic, brutal. Um, we could dissect a lot of that. I mean, the whole setting on fire thing—it's just—you uh, don't do. I mean, that's just inhumane torture. Uh, It's beyond uh, anything that you should be doing in this... uh, Well, you shouldn't be doing anything in this regard, but it's taking things to the next level when you are going to start a fire with somebody that's still alive and then lock the doors. It is amazing that she was able to survive that.
1: This was an assailant, a man who hated women, for reasons I will get into in, in the podcast. Phyllis represented to him everything he, quote unquote, hated about women. So he was punishing Phyllis, right? In a weirdly psychotic way. Uh, He meant to torture her. And she, you know, whenever I think about her, like, unlocking the doors because her hands were tied, right? And then she had to roll away from the car because she could smell the smoke. And um, she didn't know it was outside of the car. Was he still around, right? And then, um, you know, she was terribly injured. She was at the hospital for quite some time. She, and she found the strength to be fully cooperative with police, even though she didn't really trust them much. Right? Yeah, Because of all that was said about sexual assaults against women. Exactly. Being your fault. What did you do? Didn't you try to fight Phyllis when he pushed you into the car? Like all of those things entered her mind. Um, She was just incredible. And actually, that's what I want the podcast to be. I want to showcase the true heroes of these true crime cases, which would be the survivors. That's what I hope to do with Phyllis.
0: Yeah, I definitely believe that what you're doing is is exactly right. You're there for the, you're doing this for the victim, and it's amazing. You know, I've talked to a few survivors of awful crimes, people well, that have been a, thought to be murdered, but but it was part of a serial killing. And she, you know, I spoke to this one woman who had survived, and it's just amazing what the human body and the human mind can do when they're put in such a horrible circumstance and that the fight or flight mechanism within ourselves is such a strength that we can actually (laughs) do superhuman things that one out of a million times you're going to do it
1: you're absolutely right about that i think that one of the other amazing things about phyllis is after she escaped her attacker She continued to fight. She was one of the few women at the time who decided to go public, give her name, show her face in the media, and tell her story in very blunt terms. Um, As one of her family members put it, this might be hard to hear, says Phyllis, but if I went through it, you can listen to it. And that was Phyllis's attitude. She wanted everybody to understand what sexual assault was. Right? She wanted she wanted that guy to be the villain. It was not her fault and this is why. And that's what I admire so much about Phyllis Cottle, that she had the courage
0: to do that. So Phyllis gets out of the car. I'm assuming that there is already authority on the scene because there's a fire. No? Mm-mm. No. Okay. No. So she literally is out there alone, not knowing if this attacker is going to come back and attack her again, since we've already, st- clearly he's into killing.
1: Yeah. Here's what happens. So she rolls out of the car. She's tied up. You know, her assailant dropped the car off at the end of a neighborhood next to a wooded area. So there weren't neighbors in the immediate vicinity. They were a football field away. So she rolls out of the car. She can't see. Um, she's tied up. She'd been stabbed as well and and partially strangled. I mean, terrible things happened to her. So, um, but she's struggling to get away from the car because it's burning. And you know what happens to cars that are on fire? They could explode. So neighbors run over to help her eventually and um and she's already talking she's already describing her attacker she's already telling them to call police she's saying call my daughter she's giving them the phone number um she's trying to get it all out in case she dies right
0: yeah she wants it all
1: out so she's telling this to this young man who just happens to come to her rescue right just a neighborhood guy, a 24 year old man, right? And she can't see. So she doesn't know if he is the attacker or not, so she freaks out at first, right? But eventually she comes to trust him because she had to trust somebody. and, um, and then um, he eventually goes and calls the police and, and they and they come.
0: So how long was the police response? Do you know?
1: Until the police got there? Yes. Hmm. You know, that's a good question. I don't know that answer to that. I don't think it was very long, but it it had to be more than like 15 minutes, I'm I'm thinking. Because the smoke from the car would have been seen by other neighbors and they would have called the fire department. And the fire department responded first Okay. and then the police came later.
0: Usually when there is a victim like this that is being tended to quickly, they're obviously going to have worse impacts. I mean, we've seen it just recently with a football player. You know, if he had cardiac arrest out in a field with nobody around him, he would have died. But the fact that he had somebody there so quickly, he didn't lose any of that brain function, and thank God for that. But it's amazing that there are human beings that, like her neighbor, or well, the person in the neighborhood who this came young man, out, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, this is a this is a terrifying scene where nobody is ready for this at all. You have somebody who's burnt cars on fire, beaten. I don't know what I would do if I was to stumble upon that scene. So I commend anybody who is able to go beyond and above their whatever their preconceived notions are about tending to a an emergency, but...
1: Well, I'll give you a quick anecdote along those lines. So this young man, he's trying to keep Phyllis conscious. She really wants him to go call his, her daughter. She keeps saying, go call my daughter, go call my daughter. So he um, has to find a house because, you know, there were no cell phones in 1984. So he goes into someone's house and he says, can I use your phone? I need to call this lady's daughter. And he thinks to them himself, like what am I going to say to this lady's daughter? Like, what will I say? I don't want to freak her out or anything. And he was really anxious about that. So he decides to call Phyllis's daughter and tell her that um, her mom had been in a car accident. And his voice is very stilted because he wants to sound very calm and like, you know, almost professional because he doesn't want to freak her out. So Phyllis's daughter's listening to this guy and she thinks it's a prank phone call and she hangs up on him. And now he's like, oh my God, I I really want to help this lady. I have to call her daughter back. But now, so he does call the daughter back. And, And at this point, he's like, please don't hang up on me. Please don't hang up. It's not a crank. Something terrible has happened to your mom. And then the whole chain of events started from there. So that young man was freaked out. Okay. And was freaked out for a long time, which, you know, is just a demonstration of how a crime affects so many people not just the survivor
0: absolutely i mean when you look at what certain crimes do to communities they can change the whole perception of that one town i mean we've seen it time and time again where schools get associated with shootings columbine it's mm-hmm. just the what you think of when you think of school shootings you think of You know, what just happened in Idaho with the four college students? People have no shame when it comes to committing crime.
1: You know, that Idaho case is very interesting because now all the stories are about the alleged attacker. You don't really hear about the young people who were stabbed to death, right? Or when you do hear stories about them, like, where did I see it on some tabloid site that one of the victims there was a noise complaint. They had some video of her talking to police about how noisy it was. And I'm thinking to myself, really?
0: It's not news.
1: Really? Not news. Not cool. What are you doing? That's what happens when you're a college student anyway. But really? Some dignity, please.
0: I tried to explain that when I saw something on social and we just won't you know that's a mess anyway but somebody was saying like is this because you know is this the classic media white girl thing and I was like there's some of that but it's also the fact that a lot of the media majority of them probably experienced this exact same thing in their lives meaning not the killings but the noise complaints living with roommates living off campus partying leaving your doors unlocked because that's what you do you're just you don't know what your dumb drunk roommate's going to do and it's just normal to be able to walk in and out i mean i can't tell you how many houses that my friends were living in that i just there was never even a key so i mean i had a neighbor That's true. i had a neighbor who i grew up with lived across the street i she actually just moved to colorado the same area that i live in and i ran into her target here and she was telling me that when they moved or when they sold the house she had to go and get a key made because they never had a key for the house in 30 30 years <laughs>
1: I hope that's changed now. <laughs> I mean
0: that's just but that's the kind of thing that happens when you live in a city like Rocky River or um Bay Village where when Amy Maholovic went missing. It's you know, that changed the total perception of Bay Village as, you know, it is still a sleepy, tiny, wonderful, affluent neighborhood and very community friendly, but it still looms over them for sure. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. I hear what you're saying, though, about um, the coverage of of white female victims, especially pretty ones, right? Oh, for sure. Um, And, man, that's a tough conundrum. I mean, there is something to that for sure. Yes. This particular case was very unusual, though.
0: It's like a movie, and I think that's what sort of is gripping. Again, is there a factor there? Yes, 100%. But I think that's the criminology student going for his PhD, studying under one of the most well-renowned professors in the industry. All of that is just super crazy. And especially for people who do what we do or have a true crime podcast, it's hard not to look at all those interesting things. I do think it is a little weird that now the stories are mostly about you know Brian Koberger instead of the victims you know Madison and Kaylee and Z- Zana and Ethan you know those are the people that should be talked about but the reason why the t- attention's shifted is because they've got new information and they're not just running the same pictures over and over again which i can see that being a annoying and absolutely awful thing for minorities to see and for people who don't get the coverage and i've tried my best to do the stories that don't necessarily get the most coverage but when you have something like this is so scary in the sense that somebody just walked into their home and literally ended these young people's lives for no good reason not that there's ever a good reason but i think that's the thing that makes it so interesting It is what it is. I can't read every review, and I don't.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, let me ask you this question, because we always used to have this conversation at CNN about um, saying the name of the assailants. Uh, Should we say the name? Should we show their faces? Should we concentrate so much on them? So I just wanted to pick your brain to see what you thought about that.
0: I agree with you on certain cases. I do think it's uh, very hard to... Uh, talk about the victims or talk about the crime without mentioning the the suspect's name. They've done a really good job of that with school shooters. They did a good job of that when the Aurora shooting happened, which was you know about forty five minutes from where I am right now. And it's it's an I don't know. I, I don't. I <laughs> let's put it this way. I try to say it only like once. You know, let like I will make a, a point to say their name but if it's the if it's a crime that is sometimes i don't this time i did i don't know why but i think it's because of the fact that of what i said before about him being a criminology student which is super fascinating and you look at the golden state killer you look at btk they all had you know they both had criminal criminology degrees ted bundy was criminal lawyer student whatever and he was super into that kind of stuff. So I think that is just uh, those are the names. I don't think Koberger. I said it twice now. I don't <laughs> think that's. I don't think that's going to like stick out yeah. and last forever, like a Bundy or Gacy or a Dahmer or something like that. Yes, this was a horrible crime, but can you can you name the Gainesville Ripper? And this was it was it was very much like right. It was, and I forget what his name was. It's like Danny something, but. That was in 1989, and he killed a bunch of University of Florida students.
1: You know, a couple of thoughts like go through my mind. Like, as a journalist, um, I think it's important to know why people commit violent crime. I think that criminologists do a great service, right? Because that's what they—that's what they really do. They delve into the psyche and figure out why people do these things and attempt to prevent such crimes from happening. And that's important. As a journalist, I think it's important that people do know the name of the suspects and what they look like and who they are because it's public information and you have a right to know those things. As a human being, I really struggled in my podcast because, you know, I'm doing this podcast about Phyllis Cottle's case as partly a journalist and partially as a human being, which are two different things sometimes. I mean, not often, but sometimes. I can't totally remove myself from Phyllis Cottle's story as I once could have as a journalist because I'm really emotionally involved in the story. So I really thought about whether I would name the suspect or delve into why he did those terrible things to Phyllis. And I eventually came to the conclusion that I had to do that because it's so difficult to understand why anyone would do that to Phyllis. And if she spent her whole life trying to prevent crimes like this, which she did the rest of her life, um, she wanted to know too. So shouldn't I? And shouldn't you? So I came to the conclusion that I had to delve into his psyche and why he committed this heinous act.
0: And that must have been a fun adventure. Sarcasm. You know, sarcasm. No,
1: no, sarcasm, yes. It wasn't fun, but you know, I'm gonna be fully transparent. I was interested. I'm not going to lie and say I wasn't because I was. And it, it brought to light some things that I hadn't thought about. And I like to learn, right? And, you know, we're human beings and we find that stuff interesting. It's just, I guess, the level of coverage you give to these people is the thing rather than not never mentioning their name or, or not saying why they did something, right? It, it's more of glorifying it. You know, in documentaries about these people over and over. I mean, how many documentaries has there been about certain serial killers? You know, I mean,
0: we've seen the hype with Jeffrey Dahmer's miniseries and then the Dahmer tapes. And it's again, it's glorifying a, a mentally ill person who committed those crimes. I don't ever want to say that I'm empathetic or sympathetic towards Jeffrey Dahmer but I can understand that he was completely mentally ill and that when he does those prison interviews, he's like, I'm crazy as a loon, you know, and he acknowledges how crazy he is, whether or not there are other victims out there, I don't know. But is it glorifying them if they're sitting down and being honest? I think it's, I think it's just like what you said before. It's important for these people to know what these people are like, what to look out for. There's a reason why true crime podcasts are very huge in the female demographic. It's a way to uh, protect yourself against what you may not know is out there. But if you hear somebody's story about it, well, that might keep you a lot more on your toes and make you more aware.
1: Maybe. I just think I don't think that, I think sometimes you can't protect yourself from violent crime. You just are unlucky. And and in, that, and in Phyllis's case, that was, she was unlucky, right? Because sure. he had his eye on another victim, not her. She was convenient, right? So I think that knowing the psyche of these killers helped police, right, in their investigations, and they help prosecutors when they're prosecuting these people's cases, which is important. And defense attorneys too, which is also important because we do live in a democracy. I think that it's important for the general public to understand the psyche as well. I just think that there's a certain uh, point where it becomes glorification and that we have to avoid that. And that's okay. So that's how I've like settled it in my own mind. I don't know about you, but that's how I've settled it in my own in my own mind.
0: Yeah, I think that I don't give much service to the perpetrator in any of the cases that I cover. I think as a journalist that's kind of my I mean, I will give them I will say a few things about them or whatever, but the focus needs to be on the story and the case, not so much so much the perpetrator because again, like you said, the stories have changed since this other guy has been arrested in the other case in idaho so the narratives change as we go and as investigations progress and i do believe that it's important to look into the psyches of all of these individuals because there is a common thread to some i'm not saying that every criminal is the same definitely not the case but you look at like the Iceman tapes from HBO that was like 1989, 1991. I don't know. He sat down with a psychologist and, you know, this guy interviewed him. And it's basically about this hitman who did all these mafia hits and he talks like it's just you and me talking right now. Like it's nothing. And to see somebody like that, I think it's important to realize that there are people out there that can be two totally different people. Because he had a whole life and a wife and child that had no idea what he was doing when he left for work. That's just one of those cases, again, that's just crazy. Absolutely crazy. See, I
1: can't listen. Like those Bundy tapes that came out, I just couldn't listen. I don't care about him. So I'm really conflicted. Like, really conflicted.
0: The Bundy tapes, in my opinion, is Bundy bragging And so there's a difference about the way that I see his tapes, the way I see Dahmer's tapes, I see them differently. I think the Dahmer tapes are more... He's kind of just laying it out there. I'm crazy. I'm nuts. I don't know what I was doing, why I did this, but this is what I did. Whereas Bundy would always try to either justify what he did or just completely say, I didn't do it. And we all know that's just not the facts. And so you have people like BTK who was so crazy about being in the media that he wasn't even committing crimes and decided he was just going to start writing letters to the local news station to put him back on the freaking map. I mean, who does that? And we're not going to say his name, but everybody knows who it is. And uh, that guy was proud as hell. And I don't think he cared that he got caught. I think he wanted to get caught. And some of these guys do want to get caught because either they can't control themselves and they're going to do something that's even crazier than what they're doing already, or they want the recognition. And those are the ones you really need to be concerned about. And that's kind of where I feel the Idaho suspect falls, where he probably wanted to do this and get caught. And if he got away with it, great. But if he didn't, Guess who's the center of attention?
1: Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know enough about him and his case to really comment, but it is very creepy.
0: The whole thing's Um, creepy, and they're all creepy. Yeah. And Phyllis's case is creepy. And when Phyllis was attacked, did you mention that she was leaving work?
1: Yes. Okay. Well, she was leaving. She was going to lunch. She was going to Mm -hmm. lunch. It was noon.
0: Okay. So it was in the middle of the day. And she's just attacked by this individual. And, and you mentioned uh, yeah, he that came... you mentioned that this wasn't the victim that he intended to attack.
1: No. She worked at a very, um, it was like a strip mall. It has apartment buildings and a beauty salon and, I don't know, a bunch of different businesses. And her workplace was in the middle of all that. So she was parked right out in broad daylight in this busy section of West Exchange Street in Akron. And she's going to her car and someone approaches her from behind and hits her on the back of the head. And she does all the right things. She screams. She calls for help. She lays on the horn. She punches him. Right. But then he has a knife. No one came to her aid. And there were people who heard her scream. One man walked by with groceries, saw the entire thing. it was just a domestic dispute and he didn't want to get in the middle of it and walk by so that really sucked yeah um and then of course phyllis went on that oh god um six hour ordeal six hours yeah so yeah but yes he Police believe the assailant had his eye on a different woman and had been scoping her out for quite some time. He was, like, standing at that strip mall for days on end, just observing people. He had been observing seen people. before
0: or observed by witnesses.
1: Yes, observed by witnesses. And the woman he had his eye on initially that day had her children with her. And that would have been complicating factors. So... Prosecutors believe that he switched his attention to the next available victim, which just happened to be Phyllis Cottle, who just happened to be walking to her car at that particular moment. And then he saw his opportunity and he took it.
0: Now, may I ask, is there any similarities in the look between the intended victim and Phyllis?
1: No, it's unusual phyllis was 44 um usually i think is um people who do sexual assaults concentrate on younger women because they're easier prey perhaps i hate to put it that way but
0: uh, it is what it is i mean it to, is what it to, is to right? that to them it is prey that's right so you're not saying something that is out of line it does sound awful
1: he was looking for an easy mark Men who sexually assault women don't look for pretty ones. They look for easy marks. And Phyllis at that time in that space was the easiest mark that day.
0: Very interesting how one can switch from focused on this one individual and then just crime of opportunity, she's with her kids, screw it, I'm going to commit a crime. I'm so jacked up, I need to do this now. And Phyllis is just, she's just in the wrong place at the wrong time.
1: That's correct. He had a gym bag. And in that gym bag, what were things to tie up his victim with? He had the knife with him.
0: He had a rape kit, the classic it, rape kit.
1: That's that's right.
0: That's right. So he had a knife, he had rope, he had duct tape or anything you know, like along those lines. and So he was out to make, he was out to do that that day.
1: He had a plan.
0: Yeah.
1: He knew where he was going to take her or whoever that day.
0: So he took her to, to a abo- vacant yeah, house. Yeah, I was going to say, so he knew about mm-hmm. this vacant house clearly because that's just not something you just randomly stumble upon. Right. I mean, right? yeah.
1: He had a place, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that he planned to set the car on fire.
0: Why do you think he did that then? Well,
1: I think that that, I think he was just psychotic, and to him, as I said, Phyllis wasn't a human being. She was representative of all he hated in women, and you know, he he kept her pretty much blinded through the attack. He never let her look at him. It was this. It was as if, in his psyche, that he was almost ashamed of what he was doing. He wanted to leave no trace of what he did behind. So that's why I think he set the car on fire, because um, he wanted to eliminate every single aspect of evidence that he did this terrible thing. That's sick.
0: Yeah, I think it's more common than you, than we probably think of people trying to cover up their tracks. I mean, you see it all the time. Just look at this individual who killed innocent until proven guilty, but the guy in Massachusetts. The, Anna Walsh case, Brian Walsh. It's like, dude, Google how to dispose a body. I mean, criminals are dumb. I mean,
1: how stupid can you? (laughs) It's so stupid.
0: How do how do you get rid of a 115 pound body? Let's be a little bit more descriptive in our Google searches. Why, by the way, and it just never surprises me how dumb some people are. But clearly, this guy was on a mission that day in 1984 to rape somebody and no
1: well you could look at it you could look oh yes definitely but you could look at it this way too so if she dies in the car and her body burns there is no evidence if phyllis doesn't survive and police don't find her They don't know where she was abducted from because there weren't cameras all over the place in 1984. They don't know that she was sexually assaulted because her body was burned. They don't even have a basic description of the guy who uh, assaulted her, right? Mm -hmm. That she survived got him caught. Her survival was important.
0: Yeah. And I think you're right. Uh, He was just trying to get rid of the scene and, everything that he had done. And you are dead on when you say if she wouldn't have survived, then this guy probably would have gotten away with it. Because like you said, there was no, there were no other witnesses to this crime. And Phyllis really had to be her own cheerleader in this regard. And that has got to be an awful thing when you're the victim and so badly hurt.
1: I think that she derived strength from that. She was very unusual, very unusual victim, survivor, I should say. She drew strength from helping the police track down her assailant. Um, Every single small detail that she would remember, she would call police and tell them to the point where detectives felt that she was a member of their team. She, in essence, became one of the detectives in solving her own case. And they embrace that because she was just so amazing.
0: That's pretty unusual. It is pretty unusual. Typically, they, those are the ones that get, uh, <laughs> you handle that call. <laughs> I've got other stuff to do. We've seen that happen before. Uh, it's cool that they- Well, would... and,
1: and, and a lot of sexual assault victims don't want to remember or can't remember because it's because it, they went through this incredible trauma- So um, imagine just reliving that horrible thing that happened to you over and over and over again in your mind that had to be painful, right? And I understand why a lot of survivors don't want to do that or can't.
0: It's definitely something that you have to be psychologically strong for. If you're going to go through a trial, sit on the stand, ask questions confront your the perpetrator
1: well and have in the back of your mind you might be blamed for what happened to you and do you really want to go through that i mean there's all that baggage too and that does happen even today
0: it does happen many times yeah you're right and it it's a shame really if you think about it because of the fact that it's 1984 you think we have come a long way but you're right about that whole date rape thing, the whole sexual assault thing. I remember the first time I heard of date rape was the William Kennedy case uh, yeah. at the Kennedy compound. And that was the first time I'd ever heard of that. And I think that was at 89. So 89, that's, that sounds like prehistoric, like. Of course it was date rape. I mean, Cosby was date raping everybody that he went out with from the sixties on and they all the way up until they put him in jail. But yeah, that date rape thing, to think that people wouldn't take you seriously, and then they have been they've probably had friends that have been through this. And so they've seen what happens if they go forward with saying somebody assaulted them. And so maybe they don't want to go through that. And nobody should blame them, because it's traumatic as hell, and not everybody's Phyllis.
1: That's right, and um, I think that, you know, even if a stranger rapes you, you're st- there will still be people out there who will question what you did. Why didn't she run? Why wasn't she watching out who was behind her? Why wasn't she more careful? Um, why does, wasn't she carrying mace in her purse, uh, right? Why couldn't she have pepper sprayed him? Because it was 1984. You know, oh, she was. <laughs> yeah, she was. She was with him for four hours. Why couldn't she bang on the window of the car and like a, alert someone? You know, there, there, there will be people who will who will ask those questions, right? And you know that I, as a woman who's been assaulted. Yeah. Right. So I'm just saying. I don't want any other survivors to feel bad for what they couldn't do emotionally. No. Right? Because there's there's no shame. There's just none.
0: Well, it's just such a burden that some jerk has put on you that you didn't ask for. Why in the world do you have to deal with this? You were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Now you're forced to deal with this for the rest of your life. And... If you are raped or sexually assaulted by someone, well, good luck trusting anybody the rest of your life. I mean, it's got to be extremely disheartening as a human, terrifying as seeing someone overpower you and and just have their way. And And then you don't know who this person is, and now you are in charge of, well, not in charge, but you, you're you the main source for getting this individual into police custody. I mean, not everybody has to do that, Well, but Phyllis did.
1: Even she did. I mean, it, it, it didn't come easily to her. I mean, I'm making it sound like it was so easy. I'll give you a quick anecdote. So after police made an arrest, it was a very interesting investigation, by the way. But after they made the arrest, Phyllis was... Um, sitting in her bedroom. And she just felt that, you know, she would just had become a burden to her family. And what else was there to live for? She'd been through this horrible thing. She didn't know if she could overcome it. Um, She didn't feel like she could go back to work. So she decided to commit suicide. So she got all the pills that the doctors had given her for her many injuries and she decided to take them. So it's dark. She's stumbling around and she trips and the pills fall over the floor. She goes, oh shit, I can't even do that, right? Because she's sort of blaming herself, right? At this point, I can't even do that, right? I can't even kill myself, right? dropped these pills. So she's on the floor and she's like, you know, and she feels this um, hand on her shoulder. And she knows that it's God because it fills her with this warmth. And she's not a religious person. And remember, she didn't pray to get out of that car. She got pissed, right? Mm-hmm. So she says, you know what, God, you're a little late. Why should I not kill myself? And if I shouldn't kill myself, then you have to give me a reason why. Because I can't see one right now. And she said she heard a voice that said, it's gonna be okay and you will find a way. It will be fine. And she flushed the pills down the toilet, went back to her bed and she knew what she had to do. And that's when she decided to go to the media to tell her story, to go full face and to go through trial. Her testimony lasted 150 pages. She wanted to make sure that, A, he went to prison, and, B, she wanted to make sure that women knew that it wasn't their fault. She was quite the woman.
0: A <laughs> Very tough woman and a remarkable woman. And to go through something so traumatic and then turn it into, I don't want to say a positive because it's hard no no she would say that i know but it's still Uh, it's still she would say that okay fine turning turning a huge negative into a positive is very difficult for a lot of people and the fact that she was able to do so is impressive and commendable and it's very important the message that she was trying to say and that is like you said it's not your fault and the people who want to question. Individuals about these types of things are really. I don't know if it's they're doing their due diligence because I know that sometimes you have to ask these questions as an investigator. You just have to, even though it may be completely callous, come off that way. But you need to know these answers and what happened. And so, is it right to say, well, what she wasn't following? women protocol or whatever and it was 1984 there the, that wasn't really a thing and it was the middle of the freaking day why wouldn't she feel safe especially when she's going just to lunch from work this is not her fault this is the fault of the perpetrator and no woman should feel that way
1: i will say that women i i don't really think it's changed very much i think um i think it's the same today and i think that i think that women feel that way i just do they they i think it's human nature to blame yourself if only i could have done this or why did i do that or oh my god i can't believe i did this it's human nature to Blame yourself, I think, especially as a woman when it comes to that sort of crime, which is wrong, but that's what, that's just what some women do. And I think that Phyllis wanted to make sure that at least the women she could reach knew that that never question yourself, right? Right. You know what's right and what's wrong. They're the ones that are to blame, not you. And sadly, I, I don't think any of that's changed, even today.
0: Well, that's disheartening as a male. Um...
1: That's why it's taken so long for the Me Too movement to come about. I mean, jeez, that's exactly why. Not only because you don't think anyone will believe you, but maybe you did something that brought it on somehow. And I do think that's still in the minds of, of many women.
0: Sadly, that's it. That's ridiculous. I'll just say it plain and simple. I know that I'm a <laughs> white male, you know, middle class male from the suburbs. So I have wanted to talk, you know, I have no room to talk, but no, just because a woman dresses a certain way, acts a certain way, there's no excuse. There's no justification for being blamed or thinking that you in any way, shape or form led this person to the point where they said well i'm gonna rape you because you did this well no you're gonna rape them because you're freaking psycho and that's what your thing is it's not the woman's fault and if that woman is in that position step forward and i know it's difficult but know that there are more people out there that support you that don't is basically all i can say at the end of the day
1: Well, I'm happy to hear you say that. Well, it's just <laughs> I true.
0: I mean, you just be be honest with people. I mean, it, it, people will trust you if you could just be honest and like be a caring well, like individual. I, said, I
1: think I think that you know I think it's important to note that not all women choose to come forward, and that is your choice. You have the right to tell your story or to share what happened to you. Only you do. So. You know, I would be the first to say, yes, go to the authorities, go to police. But I do understand why sometimes that's impossible for some women. Um, One of my fears in doing this podcast is, you know, Phyllis was not a superhero. Um, This was her story to share. And this is how she chose to share it. And um, not all women make that same choice. And that's okay.
0: Well said. And it's something that everybody should take to heart because like you said, it's an individual's choice to share their story and not everybody wants to go through all of that. And Hey, again, all the power to anybody who can survive that, but it is tragic that we live in a society where women's beliefs or the women's the respect to women just isn't there still and it should be believe first and then go from there because I mean, I get the the whole, you got to ask the questions and, you know, make sure that they're telling the truth, but bottom line is they're human beings and they're the victims. So you treat them with kid gloves. Don't, you know, don't berate them with uh freaking accusations of, what did you do? What were you wearing? You, you know, how did you meet this individual? Did you do anything that was... And it's like those questions can come at a certain time, but no, you just just believe the victim.
1: Those questions still come today.
0: And I get it. From judges. That's ridiculous. From police, yes. Well, I will say that in, in the world that we live in, there needs to be a certain age limit for judge being a judge, I th- I, I do think there's so many <laughs> judges, and I'm not, and I'm I'm not trying to make a joke. It's just there's so many judges that still believe women are meant to be in the kitchen and not out doing whatever it is they're doing. And if they do get in situations like this, well, it's their fault. Now the judge, luckily, doesn't have the, you know, isn't the one that makes the final decision. You know, that's a jury's decision. But I can assure you, there are a lot of outdated judges that do believe that way, and that is really where we need to address some of these things in society, and that is, well, maybe if you're past a certain age and you don't really understand the issues, it's like continuing education. If you can't know what the issue of the day is or what the Me Too movement is, maybe it's time to move on. (laughs) And with that being said... When is this podcast of yours going to air?
1: <laughs> okay, so the podcast drops on January 24th and a new episode will come your way every uh, every week.
0: Excellent. Excellent. So January 24th is not even a week away. Yeah. I know. And I know. It's very exciting. And so <laughs> is there, uh, do you have any social or anything like that that you would like to promote to, uh, you know, get some people over to check it out?
1: Well, I'm going to, but it's not set up yet, quite okay. frankly. But I'm going to get to that, I promise. Right. I keep promising. But Evergreen, of course, will be helping Absolutely. with that. So I would go to the Evergreen site,
0: definitely. Yeah, evergreen.com. And Blind Rage is the name of the podcast. And Carol Costello was kind enough to drop into the studio today, all the way from California. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it's always a pleasure to uh, talk to somebody with such experience and knowledge about case and the industry carol thank you so much and i hope that everything goes well with the podcast i know it will and i think everybody will really enjoy it thanks again
1: thank you so much for having me on i so appreciate it
0: thank you so much to carol costello of now evergreen podcasts and the former cnn anchor for joining me this week to discuss this tragic case of one phyllis Cottle. if you guys would like to learn more her podcast blind rage drops january 24th and you can find out more information on evergreenpodcasts.com this is a production of evergreen podcasts and killer podcasts so check out carol's show as well as check out my show who killed as you know i drop new episodes every friday so check out next week's episode I'm not exactly sure who will be on, but it will be somebody interesting. And as always, you can help support the show via Venmo with my username at bill-huffman-3, or you can leave a five-star review or a review anywhere that you listen to your podcasts. So thank you guys so much for joining me again this week. And you know I wouldn't be here without you. So much appreciated and as always, stay healthy and be safe. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli,
1: I guess? Haha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do
0: I have to say? Yes, you do in the car before my kids pta meeting really yes excuse me what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky i never win and tell well there you have it you could get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com play for free right now are you feeling lucky no purchase necessary prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details
1: coming up on five minute news i'm anthony davis